Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Bethlehem. It is uh, great to be with all of you today. If you haven't done so already, I would encourage you to take out that colored insert in the uh, middle portion of your service folder. Um, If you're listening online with us, uh, we just want you to know that you can access the uh, group uh, questions in the sermon outline by clicking um, on the tab near uh, the place where you press play to listen to this uh, podcast. We are in the third week of this series called Navigating Culture with Truth and Grace. And honestly, um, I believe this is one of the most timely series that uh, I've ever done. There's uh, so much confusion and misunderstanding out there about how a Christian should live and react to the culture that we're living in right now. And and honestly, there are, are many churches and many Christians that I would say are responding in a way that isn't best. Some have decided to separate from culture, and so it seems as if their primary objective is to let people know uh, that what they're doing or what they believe is wrong, and it kind of just stops there. So as the result is that there are walls that are built between them and the culture, and they, those churches, lose an opportunity to be able to share with them a message that all people need to hear about Christ. At the very same time, on the other end of the spectrum, we see some churches in our culture that have decided to assimilate, to sort of uh, jump into the culture with both feet. And in those types of churches, sometimes the, the message of the truth gets watered down. And that's no good either, because then you really aren't able to stand for much at all. But what we have been doing is we've been looking at what the biblical approach is. And honestly, it's, it's the more difficult, the more challenging approach. It takes more work. We're looking to navigate culture with truth and with grace. And so I want to review what that means. So truth, that God has a standard of right and wrong. Grace, that God has a salvation plan through Jesus. Truth, that you are accountable. Grace, that you are loved. Truth, you need to leave your life of sin. Grace, you have been forgiven of all your sins. And and what we're finding and what you already know is to have the proper balance of truth and grace as you approach others, as you navigate through culture, isn't an easy thing. In fact, in the first week, we made it really clear that there will be tension when we as Christians try to navigate with truth and with grace. And in fact, I would go so far as to say is if there isn't that tension, likely We're not doing something right. There will be tension between truth and grace and when is each best given and shared and needed and even applied to our own lives. We're all going to have hard situations in which we are going to need to navigate. And, And honestly, I would say one of the things that makes navigating culture a little more difficult than it was 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, is that even the baseline of what truth is is more confused 
than ever before, at least in our culture. And one of those areas of the biggest confusion in our culture is in the area of sexuality. And there seems to be a lot of messages out there, a lot of uh, different ideas. There even seems to be confusion, not just in culture, but even in the midst of the Christian church in our country. Different messages from different churches and from different Christians. And because Matt and I have been getting lots of questions about this stuff, um, we thought that it would be good during the course of this series to address what it is the Bible says and what we believe and teach based on the Bible about sex and sexuality. So I'm going to do that right now uh, real briefly. So we believe scripturally that God created us and all people, that God is the one who created the institution of marriage, and that God is also the one who created sex. And what we believe and know is that because God is the creator of all these things, he also knows how best they work. And so here's what God clearly says in the Bible. He says that he created marriage, sex, and romance to be between a man and a woman and between a man and a woman only. Romance is only meant to be between a man and a woman. Now, we don't have time today to look at all the specific passages in which this is said, but what I I did do is I included them in your growth group discussion questions and would encourage you to dig through them um, on your own or with your growth group. But this is what the Bible says. We need to understand, though, that this doesn't mean that the laws of every country will always follow God's will on this. And because that's the case, we need to understand also that we should be less concerned about laws and more concerned about loving and caring for people. I didn't say we shouldn't be concerned about our laws What I said was that we should be less concerned about our laws and more concerned about caring and loving for people. Now, the other thing I really want to bring out here and and is a, a very important thing for us to remember is that confusion and also disobedience in the area of sexuality is certainly not limited to homosexual, homosexual relationships. There's plenty of confusion in our country and amongst us when it comes to heterosexual relationships too. And so one other thing that the Bible clearly says is that sex is meant for one environment, and that being a man and a woman who are committed to each other and only each other under the umbrella of marriage. Sex was only intended for the marriage relationship to people who have committed themselves together to each other for the rest of their lives. Now, someone might ask the question, why? And I suppose one answer that would be valid is the same answer that sometimes parents give when their kids ask why. And that answer would be, because I said so, in the sense of because God said so. 
And yet at the very same time, we see that God had an amazing amount of wisdom and care for us in giving this direction about the sexual relationship. Because God knew, and and this is shared in Scripture as well, God knew that sex is not just physical, that there uh, there is this emotional aspect of sex that allows for it to be this tremendous blessing within the confines of marriage, but also can be a tremendous burden when used lightly or carelessly. I don't know if you've ever met someone who was sexually abused as a child or, God forbid, maybe that has happened to you. That is something, that is an experience that a person never really is able to get over because it is not just a physical thing that has happened. It's an emotional thing, too. Or maybe you've run into people, or maybe you are a person who at a certain point in your life treated um, sex pretty lightly and had multiple um, sex partners over the years. And how oftentimes that can actually create more difficulty in having a close, intimate sexual relationship with your spouse. Now, there's always hope, and God always gives us the strength to get through these these things. My point is this, that God knows the best environment for romance, marriage, and sex, and that we will be blessed when we not only follow his will, but when we teach about it and preach about it as well. Now, you know what I've done so far this morning in sharing uh, God's truth about sexuality? So far what I've done is I've made a point. A point based on truth, the truth of God. Now here's the unfortunate part. Making a point about someone else's life or about the sin in someone else's life is where a lot of Christians and Christian churches stop. And in fact, at times it almost feels like some Christians and some churches seem to almost revel in pointing out the culture's sin or other, how other people have failed. That at times, Christian churches seem to be known more for what they're against than what they are for. Have you ever felt that way? And granted, some of that feeling is a misconception that people from the outside have about the church. But in talking to lots of Christians for over the years, I have to admit, not all of those feelings are a misconception. That there is some validity to those feelings about the church at times. And so today, in the time that we have left, we're going to smoke out and uncover an attitude that can so easily lurk in our hearts And it's an attitude that makes it really easy for us to make a point, but often makes it really difficult for us as Christians and as the church to navigate culture in a way that makes a difference. Our first fill-in for this morning is one that we also filled in in week one. It's just simply this, that we're not here to merely make a point. We're here God has called us here to this earth. God has allowed us to stay here and hasn't called us home to heaven yet so that we can make an eternal difference or an eternal 
impact. Now, in order for us to smoke out an attitude that sometimes we can find lurking in our hearts, we're going to turn to uh, the record of Jesus' life as recorded by a man named Luke. But before we, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at a, at a story that Jesus told in order to teach a point. We call those stories parables. But before we get to the story that Jesus told, I'd like us to first consider who it was that Jesus was speaking this story to, because it makes a big difference to better understand the context of the story. So we turn to Luke chapter 15. We're going to begin with verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners, in quotations. This is Luke's way of saying um, people whom the society at large viewed to be really bad lawbreakers. Um, We, if we're honest, will all admit that we are sinners. But the tax collectors and the sinners in quotes, <laughs> those were the professional sinners. We all sin, but, but these groups of people, as observed and thought of by culture, were people who did it really, really well. Tax collectors were considered to be professional sinners because the fact that they had sort of turned their back on their heritage, by taking up a job with the Romans. They also were known to be greedy and without compassion for people at times. Sinners, that was a a category that included people like prostitutes, adulterers, and thieves. People inside the church considered tax collectors and sinners to be people without the hope of being loved by God. They were outcast. And yet it's so interesting to me to see what's happening here in Luke chapter 15. Jesus is God. He's perfect. He's holy. Did I mention he's God? And yet these types of people enjoyed being around Jesus. They would flock to him to hear him teach, to hear him preach. They enjoyed listening to him. And in turn, Jesus didn't have any problem being around them. In fact, at times we see that he would even invite himself over to their homes for a meal. There's another group listening. Verse 2. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Now, what does mutter mean? Mutter is what happens when something's going on in the culture, in the world, or in the church, and you don't approve of it. It's a group of people who, who instead of bringing these concerns to the person, just kind of talk in the background and complain. Oftentimes you can't really, from the outside, understand what the muttering actually is. It just sounds like a bunch of, uh, a bunch of talking. You know, Pastor Ben, my boss. You know, that's that's muttering. It's a bunch. It's a bunch of complaining and pointing fingers. That's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these church leaders, were doing. And their muttering would have been something like this, if you could decipher it. Can you believe what Jesus is doing? Do you see the people he hangs out with? Do you see the people he eats dinner with? 
Here's how Luke records it. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now behind their complaining, behind their muttering, was a question. Here's the question. Does Jesus condone the behavior of the tax collectors and sinners? Does Jesus condone sin? And how would we have to answer that question that was behind the question that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had? We'd have to answer, absolutely not. Jesus is holy, perfect God. Jesus never, ever, ever once condoned sin or sinful behavior. But here's what the Pharisees are thinking. But I've, I've never seen Jesus blow up at these people. He doesn't tell them off. I haven't even ever really seen him get angry at them. So why would people who are nothing like Jesus like Jesus? And why would Jesus, who is nothing like them, that is the tax collectors and sinners, seem to like them? It's a great question. And so to answer it, Jesus tells a story. In fact, he told three stories. We don't have time to go through all three, so we're going to look at the third one, which is probably the most well-known. So we skip ahead to verse 11. To the sinners, the tax collectors, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, Give me my share of the estate. As I mentioned, these two groups of people Jesus was speaking to were so different from each other. But on one topic, they would have agreed. There would have been equal amount of angst as these people heard what this son in the story did equally would have been upset and appalled by what this son asked. Give me my share of the estate. Could I put this in 2015 language for you? In in essence, what this younger son is saying to his dad is this. Dad, I wish you'd hurry up and die so that I can have your money. But since you're not dying anytime soon, since you look to be rather healthy... Could you go ahead and pretend that you're dead so I could have my inheritance and your money now? Like I said, in any culture, no one would have agreed or felt like what the younger son asked of his dad was good in any way. Look at what the dad does in Jesus' story. So he, the father, divided his property between, him, between them. So the dad complied with the younger son's um, request. And as the story goes, and some of you maybe have heard it before, the son had a whole lot of worldly fun in the really short amount of time. And really quickly, after having experienced and, and led a wild life for months or a couple years, he had nothing left. And in fact, things got so bad for this young man that the only way he could live after a famine hit was to gain a job raising pigs. Now, think about this. 
Jews were not allowed to eat pork. So I would have to imagine that raising pork, raising pigs, is about as low as it could get for Jews who are strictly forbidden from eating it. Now, I'm guessing that some of the listeners that day, especially um, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at this point, might have been thinking, you know what? This story is for the sinners and the tax collectors. And in essence, Jesus' point here is going to be really clear. That you reap what you sow. <laughs> that if, if you're going to live a certain way, you're going to be punished for it. But that wasn't the point of Jesus' story. And this wasn't the end of it either, the story. And so the young man comes to his senses as he's sitting there hungry and feeding and taking care of pigs. And he asks himself this question, why am I working at this pig farm with almost nothing to eat? Well, at the same time, my dad has servants that are much better off than me. And so the younger son decides to go home. And you got to understand, he's not expecting that his father is going to receive him as a son. He's not expecting that he's going to get his old room back. But maybe, just maybe, if I happen to hit my dad on a good day, maybe he'll allow me to work for him. Maybe he'll allow me to, to live with the servants. He's hoping that his dad might welcome him back. Well, everyone's listening intently to what the father would do. Verse 20 so the boy got up, the younger son, and he went to his dad. But while he, that is, the younger son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with. <laughs> and if you were writing the story, I have an assumption as to how you'd probably continue. Most of the people in the crowd would have felt that they would have known the feelings that the father would have had as he saw his, his disobedient son who wished that he was dead coming back with nothing left to his name. That they would have filled in that blank with angry. That his dad saw him in the distance and was filled with anger, disdain, disgust. And yet that's not how Jesus continued. He was filled with, the Father was, compassion, grace, undeserved love, mercy, patience, care. In fact, it continues, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. To think of the patriarch of the family running in this time frame and culture <laughs> would have caught everyone's attention because dignified patriarchs did not run for anything. And yet this father who had been sort of totally told off and showed lots of lack of love by his younger son runs. He is so happy to see his son again. And not only does he run to him, but he throws his arms around him and brings him close and kisses him. Now you got to think about that too. 
What do you think this younger son smelled like? Probably a wonderful mixture of pig manure, you know, a year's worth of B.O., (laughs) sweat and dirt. I mean, just a smelly mess. And yet the dad doesn't care. He's so happy that his son is back. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against God, and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And so the son has come to a a true understanding of repentance and feeling bad for what he's done. And he's again just hoping maybe that his dad would receive him back as a servant. But the father who ran to his son, the father who threw his arms around him and gave him a kiss, he just continues the love fest. He's going to throw a party because his younger son is back. He puts a robe on him, new sandals, a ring on his finger, and then he calls for the fattened calf. And now that is a total cultural thing for us, right? We always talk about fattened calves around here in 2015. (laughs) Like, not at all. The the fattened calf was that, that calf, that cow, that a family took special care to feed well, to fatten up, because it would be the calf that would be the centerpiece of the feast when something really, really big happened, like a wedding or the birth of a child. This was that event that a fattened calf was needed for. This was huge. The younger son was back. And the father who had no reason to forgive him did and wanted to throw a party. And in the father's reaction in this story, we find Jesus teaching us that there is hope for every single one of us. We find Jesus dramatically teaching that there is no one that can be out of God's love and grace, that through Jesus' suffering and death, there is hope for the sinful Pharisee, and the sinful Christian. And there's the same hope and forgiveness for the sinful tax collector, prostitute, adulterer, and thief. There's hope and forgiveness available for those that are guilty of heterosexual sins. There's hope and forgiveness available for those that are guilty of homosexual sins. There's hope and forgiveness available for you. And there's hope and forgiveness available for me because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, dying the death that we rightly deserved and rising again in victory. And so no no matter how far you've strayed, my friends, God wants to embrace you just like he embraced the son in Jesus' story. He wants to embrace stinky, smelly sinners like me and you and wants to spend eternity with us because of the sacrifice of his son Jesus on our behalf. Now that's a, that's a great message. That's an awesome parable and sermon. And oftentimes, that's where the sermon ends. 
But interestingly enough, that's not how Jesus' story ended. How many sons did the father have? Not one, two. The other one, the older son, seemed to behave better. He seemed to have his act together. I mean, I'm the oldest in the family. I think I'm at liberty of saying that usually the older son acts better, right? Okay, (laughs) maybe not all the time. But this case, the older son seemed to just obey more, listen to his father more, obviously. In fact, look at verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son, as all of this other stuff was going on, was in the field. What do you think he was doing there? Listening to his dad, being faithful, doing what he was supposed to be doing, working in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he, the older son, called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. So the older son is out doing what he's supposed to do. He comes home for the evening. And he hears music and dancing and he thinks, I don't remember a party being on dad's schedule or calendar. And he sees one of the servants walking by and says, hey, um, what's going on? You just imagine the servant. (laughs) Guess what? Your younger brother, he's back. And all of us servants who are watching thought your dad was going to go out there and give your brother uh, the once over and send him off because he was so ticked off at him for what he had done in the past and now he'd squandered all your dad's money. But that's not what your dad did. Guess what he did? He gave him a big hug and he brought him back to the house and he's throwing a party on your brother's behalf. Oh, and one other thing. He killed the fattened calf for your younger brother. And the older son is probably thinking, um, the fattened calf. Like, the fattened calf that I had hoped my dad would kill for my wedding someday, or for the birth of my first child, or for graduation. The fattened calf. He's, he's not only throwing a party for my younger, disobeying brother, but he killed the fattened calf for him? Really? And on this amazing day, with this amazing display of forgiveness by the father, guess how the older son responded to his dad. Verse 28, the older brother became angry. He refused to go in. In fact, his his father went out and pleaded with him. So dad comes out and pleads with him, son, Come on. You're acting so immature right now. Your younger brother is okay. It's something to celebrate. Come, have a party with us. This is a good day. This is a good thing. Your brother's back. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Although, hmm. He just disobeyed by not coming into the party. And I'm sure that wasn't the first time. I'm sure this is an overstatement. 
Yet, he says, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. You never gave me even a young goat, yet you, you killed a fattened calf for him. When this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, verse 30, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You know what was wrong with the son? The older son, he didn't feel this was fair. Dad, this isn't fair. And so the son gets angry and thinks it's not fair. Now, why does the older son not think it's fair? Because he had blinders on. Do you know what blinders are? Most of the young people probably don't. Some of you, I'm sure, do. Look at this picture. Blinders are these things that um, a jockey will put on the eyes of a horse so that the horse doesn't look at everything but is only focusing on one thing. For the horse to have blinders on can be good for racing. For us to have blinders on, at least in this case, isn't good at all. Because the older son who was so keyed into just one thing, and that one thing was himself and the things that he thought he deserved and all of his obeying which he felt should elicit him things. And so with his blinders on, he was only focused on himself. And you know what he missed? He missed that while he might have obeyed at times more than his younger brother, that his obeying was not the reason that he was blessed with so much. That the older brother was just as much a recipient of the Father's grace as the younger brother. What did you do to become a son or a daughter of your parents? Absolutely nothing. I didn't do anything to become my dad's son. Something given to me. And my, my dad, my mom, they, they loved me because of their son, not because I was their son, not because I earned it, not because I deserved it, because of a status that I had nothing to do with. I was given their love. The same was true with the older brother. Yeah, he might have disobeyed better. But the things that he had just as much as the younger son were a product of not anything that he was, but of the love and the care of the father. The older brother had blinders on, and it made it hard for him to think about anybody but himself. Do you ever have blinders on? You know, I, we all have this natural tendency to think about ourselves more than anyone else a tendency to think the worst of others while giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt. As a staff here at Bethlehem, we're reading through a leadership book by Patrick Lencioni. It's called The Advantage. And it's a book all about how people can work well together. 
And he brought out this, this, this thing that almost, I would guess, all of us at times lapse into this, this idea, this feeling that he calls the fundamental attribution error. And his definition is this. It's the tendency we have to attribute the negative or frustrating behavior of others to their personalities while attributing our own negative behaviors to environmental factors. And so if that makes no sense to you, let me explain it with an example that he gives. Here's, here's in essence how it plays out. Let's say you're grocery shopping and you see a father wagging his finger and speaking loudly to his five-year-old daughter about something in the middle of the grocery store. And his point is that if, if you're someone watching this happen, your likely thought is something like this. Wow, that guy has some anger problems. And you might even think, wow, he needs some counseling for his anger, right? Well, at the same time, if we find ourselves to be the one who's wagging the finger at our five-year-old daughter, we right away give ourselves the benefit of, of the doubt. Well, she deserved this. And or, well, I just was having a bad day. How much we find ourselves giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt by nature, making excuses by nature, while pointing the, the finger at someone else and categorizing others. Isn't that true? We're masters at finding excuses for our sins, excuses for our failures, for our shortcomings. Uh, it's, it's his fault for how the marriage is going. No, it's, it's her fault for how things are going in the relationship. It's their fault for how I'm feeling. It's God's fault for how my life is. Well, at the same time, we can be guilty of not viewing others with the same amount of grace or patience. The truth is that sometimes the church and or Christians come off unloving and angry towards people because at times Christians and the church have a tendency towards being unloving and angry. Sometimes Christians have spent a large portion of their lives giving their time and their talents and their offerings. Like the older brother, they spent a large portion of their life behaving, and we have forgotten that our behaving has nothing to do with the grace and love and blessings that God gives to us. We have forgotten that we are just as much recipients of God's grace as anyone else. We, my friends, as Christians, need to take the blinders off. The truth is that while some of us might identify with the older brother, all of us, every single one of us, should be able to identify with the younger brother who is far away from the father, but the father's gracious love received him back, our next fill-in. We've all, every one of us, Experience the compassion of the Father. That's the baseline. That's the, 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 the same foundation that we all have. We've all been where the younger brother was. Well, the Father 
had some words to share with the older brother after the older brother refused to go to the party. Dad said this, my son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. You see, the father wanted the older son to see that there was a benefit for him to have been with the father all those years. That while the blessing and the inheritance was the same at the end, that there was a blessing the older son had that the younger didn't. He was always with the dad. Do you know the depths your younger brother was in? There's no way you'd ever want to be where your younger brother was. Tired, broke, hungry, in the middle of a pig farm. You see, you've received my grace. Your younger brothers received my grace. You have the blessing of having always been with me. You didn't go through all the hurt and despair of being apart from me for so long. It's better to be you and to have been with me the whole time. You were with me. But we had to celebrate verse 32 and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You need to be happy, older brother. Because this great thing has happened. Your brother is back. He's back in the fold. He's back in the family. He was lost, but now he's okay. Now he's found. You need to be happy. Our next fill-in. Sin should always break our hearts. Should always cause us to feel bad and sad. And not just other people's sins. Our sin, too, should break our hearts. And we should feel as bad about our own sin, if not worse, than other people's, right? <laughs> and forgiveness should always lift our hearts. I think we most be, are able to celebrate our own forgiveness, right? But in this statement, sin should always lift our hearts. Remember, also, the forgiveness and grace other people are experiencing, too. <laughs> so what about for us as a church? How do we apply this to us as a church, this, this attitude that we should be aware of that is self-centeredness and this attitude we should have, which should be joy for people who have come to faith or have received forgiveness? Well, let me explain it this way. There are two types of people. Those who move towards messes to get rid of them and those who avoid messes because they don't want the work. Take laundry as an example, and you'll understand this. Some of us, when the laundry is done, want to get it folded and put away right away. Others of us, well, let's just say we opt for closing the laundry room door. Now, while there's merit for each of those, I guess, ways of reacting to the mess of laundry, I will say this. It is better to just get rid of the mess, to walk towards it. If you don't believe me, well, let's just say, have you ever had it happen where after a shower, 
you didn't have any laundry in your drawer because all of your clothes is downstairs in the laundry room and you had to run downstairs in a towel looking for clothes and underwear because none of it was where it was supposed to be because there was a big mess in the laundry that never has been addressed. Yeah, I think you've been there, right? Eventually, the mess is going to cause problems. It's better to address the mess and to work on getting rid of it. And so as a church, as we navigate culture with truth and grace, we are not going to be afraid of the mess of sin. But we will be a church that moves towards the messes that sin creates. And as we move towards them, we are going to address the messes of sin first and foremost in our own hearts with truth and grace. And then in the hearts of the people in our families, in our church, in our communities, also with that proper balance of truth and grace. Truth which doesn't look past the mess of sin and pretend like it's not there, but is okay with saying there's a mess here. And grace, which is God's plan through Jesus and his forgiveness to get rid of the mess. And what's going to help us in this endeavor as we have that healthy tension of truth and grace, is that each and every one of us would, for a moment and for always, remember to take our blinders off and to realize that we are no better than anyone else, that we have needed the grace of an amazingly loving Father and forgiveness from him just as much as anyone else. And now it is our privilege to be able to share that same grace and also truth with those around us and with those in culture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to gather around the Word. We thank you for this uh, story that you told, Jesus told 2,000 years ago and for the comfort, strength, and direction that it gives to us still today. Dear Lord, help me to identify through this story my great need for your forgiveness and the joy that comes with knowing how gracious you are. And then help me to be just as passionate about the forgiveness that we have to share with others as we also share with them truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.